Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard about a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Hi, I'm Jules, and welcome to Morbid Tourism, the podcast. On this podcast, I'm going to talk about the true crime cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning. This episode includes disturbing content, including descriptions of extreme violence, sexual assault, and violence against children. Listener discretion is advised. One of the most exciting moments in a young person's life is getting that first job. It's one of those milestones that marks the departure from childhood and the entrance into adulthood. I can still vividly remember interviewing for my first job when I was just 15 and a half years old at the local Jamba Juice in my town. And I remember the manager asked me, what does integrity mean to you? I honestly had to fess up to her that I didn't even know what integrity meant. At 15 or 16, you know, you just want to think that you're so grown up, but that just proves how little I actually knew. Luckily, I still got hired and I worked at Jamba Juice for the rest of high school. I really loved putting on my apron and my visor and name tag and just making smoothies for people after school just so I could afford some like cool clothes from Abercrombie and Fitch like all of the cool people wore. Now, I tell this story because in 1991, 17-year-olds Eliza Thomas and Jennifer Harbison were working their after-school jobs at a yogurt shop in Austin called I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. Now, this shop was in the suburbs just north of Austin. And you might be familiar with ICBY yogurt shops, and that's actually what this what these shops were rebranded as, um, but at the time it was the full I can't believe it's yogurt name, which is quite a mouthful. These shops are like your typical frozen yogurt shops. You know, they offer a variety of flavors and then you can pick out your toppings like fruit or candy, chocolate syrups, things like that. And this is the kind of yogurt shop where you don't serve yourself, the employee pours the yogurt and then puts the toppings on for you. So it's not one of those like by weight yogurt shops. And these ICBY yogurt shops are usually found in like suburban strip malls. And the one that Eliza and Jennifer worked at was at the Hillside Center strip mall. On the night of December 6, 1991, Eliza and Jennifer were closing up the yogurt shop. Jennifer's 15-year-old sister, Sarah, and her friend Amy Ayers headed over to the shop to help the pair close and the four girls were planning on having a slumber party that night. You know, very high school thing to do, head to the shop, help your friends close up so that they can get done early, and then you can all, you know, hang out together and start your sleepover. A little bit before closing time, the shop had several guests inside, enough that a small line formed. A man or a young man near the end of the line was memorable to some of the other guests for a a few reasons. This young man was acting kind of erratically, and he even asked one of the other guests that was in front of him in line if the man was a cop, but the guest was not a cop, but still very confused by the question. 
The man then asked if he could use the restroom in the back, and Eliza and Jennifer allowed him to go use the bathroom. Instead of it just being like a quick trip to the restroom, though, the man took a suspiciously long time. And I need to describe the way that this shop is set up in order for this to kind of make sense. So basically, when you walk in the front door of the shop, there's kind of tables all around, there's booths along both sides of the shop, and then the counter where the yogurt and toppings and checkout stand is, is kind of along the back wall opposite to the front door. There's an opening next to the counter that allowed for the employees to go into the back area, and the bathrooms were located in this back area, kind of where like the walk-in freezer was and the manager's office and all of that kind of stuff. So it seems like it was almost like an employees only bathroom, but it seems like they sometimes allowed customers to use that bathroom since that was the only one that they had. If this description doesn't make sense to you, there is a picture of the layout of the shop on the website, morbidtourism.com, and I'll also post it on the Instagram so that you can get a better idea. But what I'm really trying to get across here is that if someone was in the bathroom area and the employees were in the front making yogurt for customers, it would be really easy for that person to poke around in the back area without the employees knowing. It's now believed that while the man was in the back supposedly using the restroom, he may have also snuck to the back door and unlocked it as it was found unlocked later. Finally, 10 p.m. came around and Jennifer locked the door so that no new guests could come in while still allowing a few guests to sit in the dining room and finish up their yogurt. This was kind of the same policy that we had. We would allow guests to, you know, finish up whatever they were doing inside, but we wouldn't let new customers come in. And if a guest needed to leave at that point, we would just unlock the door, let them leave, and then relock the door so no one else comes in. And that seems like the same thing that uh, they would do at this yogurt shop. So while the girls were cleaning up, uh, some guests did need to leave. So Jennifer unlocked the door to allow a couple out. And the couple remember seeing two large middle-aged men still inside the store and they were acting kind of suspiciously, though not enough for anyone to be like actually concerned that they were going to do anything. This was the last time that anyone would see any of the four girls alive. Around midnight that night, a police patrolman noticed smoke coming from the strip mall and he reported to the dispatcher that he needed a fire truck as backup to put the fire out. Firefighters arrived quickly and started fighting the blaze. While the fire was still tearing through the building, firefighters entered the shop to attempt to fight the fire from within, but that's when they came across the charred bodies of all four girls. All four of the girls had gunshot wounds to the head and were bound and gagged using pieces of their own clothing. Eliza, Jennifer, and Sarah's bodies were all found stacked together near the back door of the shop and had extensive burns covering their bodies. Amy's body was found several yards away from the other girls, and although she had actually been shot in the head twice, It's believed that she survived being shot, and after the perpetrators had lit the blaze and left the shop, Amy had pulled herself towards the front of the shop before succumbing to her extensive injuries. $540 in cash was missing from the store, which is equivalent to a little over $1,100 today. 
Robbery was believed to be more of a secondary motive in the attack. The investigators thought, you know, if the perpetrators were really after money, then a yogurt shop probably isn't the first place that you think to rob. The attack on the girls was likely the primary motive for these perpetrators. Autopsies were performed on the girls' bodies, and it was determined that two of the girls had been raped. The medical examiner was able to recover DNA from their rapist through a rape kit. All four girls had received execution-style gunshots to the back of their heads, and two different bullet types were found, which led investigators to believe that two different perpetrators may have been involved, although the DNA that they collected was only from one man. The four girls had also been doused in some form of accelerant before being lit on fire, but it is believed that Eliza, Jennifer, and Sarah were dead at the time that the fire was started. When the news spread about what had happened to these four innocent girls, the city of Austin was outraged and demanded justice. Investigators worked around the clock as much as possible. They followed up on any possible leads and a ton of leads poured in. Now, the fact that there were so many different leads could have been as much of a burden as it was a positive thing. When there are so many different things to go after, investigators often have a really tough time narrowing down what to spend their time actually looking into, and some you know, really viable leads might not get the attention that they deserve because the, the police and the detectives are looking into some of these other leads that actually don't have anything to do with it. But that being said, you know, it, it's always better to get, you know, as many leads as possible and just get as much information from the community, especially in a case like this where they kind of had nothing to go on except for what the public was willing to disclose. So ultimately, they tried their best to follow up on everything. Initially, it was actually believed that the perpetrator or perpetrators might have had prior criminal experience. Investigators believed this because the forethought needed to ask to use the restroom, then unlock the back door for access, and then go in after closing time when no one else was in the shop, also bringing accelerant to the crime scene. It just, it seemed like something that had a lot of thought put into it, and someone who had never done a robbery before probably wouldn't have the forethought to bring all of these things with them and also be able to keep four scared teenage girls under their control uh, while they carried out all of these terrible things. About a week after the murders, a 15-year-old boy named Maurice Pierce was arrested. He was found in a mall nearby the Hillside Center, and Maurice actually had a gun on him, so that's why police initially made contact with him and kind of brought him in for questioning. The gun turned out to be a 22 caliber pistol, which was the same type used to shoot some of the girls. But remember when I said before, there were two different bullet types found and a 22 caliber was one of the two. So Pierce was brought in and questioned in relation to the murders after they found that the gun was the same type as one that was used in the murders. And one of the detectives who questioned the teen was Detective Hector Polanco, of the Austin Police Department. Now, Detective Polanco was known to be a tough detective and he utilized 
pretty aggressive questioning techniques against suspects. While being questioned by Detective Polanco, Maurice Pierce signed a written confession that implicated himself and three of his friends in the yogurt shop murders. After more digging, though, it was determined that this confession was 100% coerced by Detective Polanco, and he was actually taken off the task force completely. Pierce and his friends were determined not to be involved in the case by the other investigators on the task force. Dozens of other people were brought in for questioning. Like I said, there had been so many leads that were called in, so many tips. And so they ended up bringing in 342 suspects in relation to the murders. But ultimately, they came up empty-handed. After more than five years of dead ends and no arrests, the case was handed over to a new investigative team to see if a fresh set of eyes could reveal something that was previously missed. This new team reviewed all of the case files, all of the evidence that had been collected, and in the extensive list of people who had been brought in for questioning, they found Maurice Pierce's file. They were especially interested in him because he had confessed in 1991, and so they began reinvestigating Maurice Pierce, who was now into his 20s. In 1999, Maurice Pierce and three of his friends were arrested for the yogurt shop murders. The three friends were Robert Burns Springsteen Jr., Forrest Brooke Welburn, and Michael James Scott. All four of the men were kept separate from each other and questioned individually. This is pretty standard practice. You know, investigators don't want suspects to have time to collaborate on a cover story and get their story straight. They just want to hear the story from each of them individually, you know, kind of off the cuff. It's also not uncommon for investigators to lie to people that they are questioning and say things like, oh, your buddy just confessed to everything, but said that you pulled the trigger, so why don't you tell us your side of the story? Also, to give you an idea of the kind of practices going on in the Austin PD in the 90s, so remember Detective Polanco, who was taken off the case in 1991 for coercing a confession? Well... Before the murders at the yogurt shop, Detective Polanco was a detective in an eerily similar case where a female employee of a pizza hut whose name was Nancy DePriest, she was tied up using pieces of her own clothes, raped, and shot execution style in the back of the head. Two employees from another pizza hut in the area, their names were Christopher Ochoa and Richard Danzinger, they were questioned by Detective Polanco and Ochoa confessed to the crime, fingering Danzinger as the trigger man. These two also went to trial separately, and they were found guilty, even though there was no physical evidence tying either one of them to the crime. While incarcerated, Danziger was brutally attacked, and he suffered severe brain damage, enough for him to be transferred and incarcerated in a mental hospital instead of prison. In 2002, DNA from the rape kit that was from the victim was analyzed and exonerated both men who were then released. Both men claimed that their confessions had been coerced and that they had been threatened by the police during questioning, and that's the only reason that they gave a confession at all. But 
back to the yogurt shop case. Although the interviews with the men weren't recorded, so we don't know for sure what happened in the interrogation room, Michael James Scott ultimately confessed to the murders, and Robert Springsteen also confessed to the murders and the rapes. The two other men, Maurice Earl Pierce and Forrest Brooke Welburn, were ultimately released due to lack of evidence against them. The trials against Springsteen and Scott took place separately, which is pretty standard. The prosecution was ruthless as they described the horrific scene that the firefighters had discovered inside the yogurt shop. They claimed that Springsteen and Scott, along with the help of the two other boys who were not on trial, had entered the shop through the unlocked back door after closing time in an attempt to rob the shop. The prosecution also claimed that they had targeted that specific yogurt shop because they had been there before and they knew that they could easily unlock the back door if they asked to use the bathroom that was in the back of the shop. In terms of physical evidence, the prosecution really didn't have anything because there was no physical evidence tying the men to the murders. Instead, the confessions from the men were used as the primary piece of evidence to convict. I also need to state that Springsteen's confession was used in Scott's trial and vice versa, but neither of the men's defense teams were able to cross-examine the other man. After hearing the horrifying details of the crimes and the men's confessions, the juries in both cases found Springsteen and Scott guilty of capital murder. Springsteen received a death sentence while Scott received 99 years, but the case does not end there. After their convictions, both men appealed the rulings, stating that their confessions had been coerced and they had nothing to do with the murders. You know, if you think that Springsteen and Scott are guilty, it could be easy to overlook this as, oh, they just decided they didn't want to confess anymore, and so they're taking everything back and just saying that it was coerced, right? But you have to remember the kind of practices that were going on in the Austin PD at the time that both men were interrogated. Both of their defense teams continued to appeal their convictions and they actually had the DNA evidence from the victim's rape kits tested. They were found to have no DNA that linked to Springsteen or Scott. In 2006, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals overturned Springsteen's conviction due to a violation of what is known as the Confrontation Clause of the U.S. Constitution. So I had never heard of the Confrontation Clause, but apparently this means that if someone is making an accusation against you and that's being used in trial, you have the right to cross-examine that witness or confront them in court. Because each men's confession was used against the other in court and neither was allowed to be cross-examined, this violated the Confrontation Clause. But just because Springsteen's conviction was overturned, it didn't mean that he was immediately free. The DA was still pushing to reinstate the conviction, and he actually brought the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, who denied the request to reinstate the conviction. Again, this doesn't mean, though, that the men were free. The DA was still pushing to retry Springsteen for the murders. While all of these requests were happening, both Springsteen and Scott remained incarcerated. 
Finally, on June 24, 2009, a Texas judge ruled that both men should be freed on bond while they awaited their upcoming trials. Later that day, the DA released a statement that neither of the men would be retried until they were able to identify whose DNA was found on the victim's rape kits. Although the DA also stated that they were certain that Springsteen and Scott were involved, but they couldn't risk taking it to trial until they knew whose DNA that was. Just four months later, the DA dropped all charges against Springsteen and Scott, neither of which received any sort of compensation for the time that they were incarcerated. In 2017, investigators attempted to identify the male DNA found on the rape kits using familial DNA. Now, true crime aficionados will be familiar with this type of DNA profiling. Essentially, you find someone who is related to the perpetrator and using genealogy, you kind of trace that family tree back, you look at everyone in that family tree that this DNA could possibly belong to, and you start narrowing down, okay, who was in the area at the time, who could have committed this crime. The DNA was submitted to a database operated by the University of Central Florida. Investigators were thrilled when they received a familial match to the DNA, but elation quickly turned to disappointment. The match had apparently been submitted by an FBI agent, and the FBI would not agree to release the identity of that agent. Now, before you get too mad at the FBI, the database that investigators used was for population research. It didn't disclose to any of the DNA donors that their DNA could be used by law enforcement. So, for example, if you had agreed to give your DNA to a nearby university because they were doing research, and you weren't told that at some point this could be used by the police and could possibly link you to a crime, well, that's apparently an invasion of your privacy and is illegal. This is not the same type of database as CODIS, for example, which is kind of the national DNA registry that law enforcement uses fairly regularly. Um, this is a privately you know, owned and operated database, and so they could not breach the privacy of the DNA donors by using that DNA to then identify a murderer. The FBI also stated that the DNA profiles that were submitted were not specific enough to be able to conclusively match DNA to an individual. It was more, I guess, general DNA that gave these researchers an idea of, you know, someone's genetic background, but not enough to conclusively say 100% that Joe Schmo was the one that committed a murder. As of today, the case remains officially unsolved, but there is still hope that this case may someday be solved through familial DNA. We know that this person has family in the United States because we've already seen evidence of that. So as soon as one of their relatives submits their DNA into a database that the law enforcement agencies can use, something like CODIS, then we are that much closer to finding the individual or group of people that committed this awful, awful crime. Is it possible that the middle-aged men who were seen acting suspiciously in the dining room after closing time, that they were responsible? They've never been conclusively identified. 
Or were Springsteen and Scott involved after all? Hopefully soon, the family will have answers that they've wanted for almost 30 years. The Hillside Strip Mall where the yogurt shop was located is still standing today. If you visit, you might notice a small memorial plaque in the parking lot. The plaque reads simply, In loving memory, Amy Ayers, Sarah Harbison, Jennifer Harbison, Eliza Thomas, forever in our hearts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Morbid Tourism about the Austin Yogurt Shop murders. If you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to Morbid Tourism on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please leave a rating or a review and let us know what you think. New episodes will be released weekly. Between episodes, you can visit www.morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. Follow us on Instagram at morbidtourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Additional research by Amanda Pukert. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia, My Favorite Murder Podcast, thetruecrimefiles.com, a Texas monthly article titled Under the Gun, and The Innocence Project. <laughs>